We are in Leviticus, Sundays, been doing a couple of prophecy updates. We'll do at least one more this coming Sunday. But tonight, still in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 22. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Leviticus 22. I'm, I'm excited about tonight's teaching, but I'm not even sure if excited is the right word. Last week, I was excited because I knew we were going to talk about the disabled priest. And I liked the theme, and I thought, that's cool. And there are a lot of ins and outs of what does that mean and how I'm a disabled priest having been enabled by Jesus. And, and so it was, it was cool thematically. And tonight, it's not so much a thematic thing. It's just good Bible. And I hope you re react and respond to it the way I did. I just felt washed and cleansed by it, studying through it. So Leviticus 22, as we begin to focus a little bit more on the priesthood. Now, we've, we talked about the priesthood last week, and it was about the disabled priest last week. Well, this is more instruction for the priest, so what's marvelous is that means there's immediate application for us. But let, let's just begin chapter 22, verse 1, which says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Aaron. Why does he do that? Remember that God only directly speaks to Aaron a couple or three times ever. Most of the time, it's the Lord spoke to Moses and said, tell Aaron. Just tell Aaron, Lord, why, why, why going through Moses? Why this paradigm? Why this setup? The Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell Aaron. And it's because Moses is a picture Moses himself, a great prophet, one of the two greatest prophets of Israel, is a picture of the prophet, the prophet. Go ahead and turn over. I wasn't going to do this, but let's do this. Turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18. Rick's going off note, and we haven't even hardly started. Deuteronomy 18, where Moses is speaking, and in verse 15... He says this, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. And he wasn't talking about Elijah. And it wasn't Elisha. It wasn't Isaiah. It wasn't Jeremiah. It wasn't Ezekiel. He's talking about Jesus. A prophet like me. A prophet as great as Moses. In fact, when Jesus would feed the 5,000, Remember, giving them bread from heaven, as it were. First time that miracle had happened since Moses and the manna in the wilderness. Jesus is the prophet. So think about it. This is the pattern. This is why. And you can go back to Leviticus 22, just that little sidetrack there. But this is why the Lord is always saying to Moses, speak to Aaron. The Lord speaks to Moses as father speaking to son, and son then speaks to the priest. That's how it works right now. The Son speaks to you, speaks to me by his Spirit. And so the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as not to profane my holy name, I am the Lord. How many times have we heard that in the last several chapters? I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. It is the basis, it is the reasoning for all of these things. Say to them, if any man among all your descendants throughout your generations, okay, speaking to Aaron and his sons, so their descendants are still speaking to the priests, 
if any man among your descendants throughout all your generations approaches the holy gifts which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from before me. I am the Lord. Now I'm going to be asking four questions tonight. We're just going to do these four questions that will frame the chapter, these 33 verses before us. Questions for the priestly people of Jesus Christ. So as he speaks to the priesthood, and I've said this every week for the last several, that remember that we are a royal priesthood, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2, verse 9. It's the tie-in verse to all of Leviticus, as far as I'm concerned, as the priestly model is set before us, but we are now the royal priesthood. Revelation 1, 6, he has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So royal priesthood, what can we draw from this? There's the immediate interpretation, which is what the priests were to do. And then there's the glorious application, which is what we as his royal priesthood do with these things. So question number one, how do we approach the holy things of God? How do we approach the holy things of God. If any man among all your descendants throughout your generations approaches the holy, which the sons of Israel dedicate to the Lord while he has an uncleanness, that person shall be cut off. The holy. Your translation may say the holy gifts. It could say the holy things. The word gifts is italicized because it's not there. Literally, it's ha, ha kodesim. Ha the holy. Kodesim, the holy in, in the plural, the holy things. Now, gifts, the reason why they put gifts in here is it's implied by the offerings of the people. So, so the, the word gifts fits, but the word gifts isn't really the word. It's the holy things. It's that which is holy in, in plural. How do you approach the holy things of God? You ever stop and think about that? How, how you approach personally the holy offerings as a priest, and we've already looked at the disabled priest enabled by Jesus, but now... How do we approach, as priests, the holy things? The approach will reveal the heart. How you handle the holy things of God will reveal where your heart is with the Lord. Leviticus 21, again, taught us that only a priest who was perfect, this is impossible, but a priest without defect, without deformity, without disfigurement, only such a priest could even approach God, that is, approach the altar, or in the high priest's case, approach the holy place in the holy of holies. Well, Leviticus 22 now deals with how the priest was to approach the holy offerings themselves, the holy things. That's what God called them. The sacrifices, the things brought by the people, these were immediately considered holy because God is holy. And so the priests were not only to be holy themselves, but holy in how they approached the very holy things of God. And all these things needed to be approached with the right heart, with a sincere heart of reverence and awe and deep respect. You might say, okay, that's great for the priest, but how does that apply to us, approaching the holy things? What do you mean? We don't handle animal sacrifices in here, so that's out. No meat, no grain offerings. We don't have in our hands the, the showbread. 
You know, especially if you're on a paleo diet, that doesn't apply to you. How do we approach the holy things? Listen, we do. We do all the time. We handle the holy things of God, and oftentimes we don't even think about it or realize how hands-on we are with the holy of God. Now, if I say, okay, how do you handle your holy offerings? Well, immediately, most of our minds would go to offerings, money. It's a monetary thing. Because when we think of offerings now, that's what we think of monetarily. And since you brought it up, well, let's talk about that for a minute. Do we approach our tithes and offerings as holy things? Do you give with reverence? Do you make offering with a sense of, of awe before the Lord? Recognizing that the moment that dollar or that check or that text leaves your hand, leaves your bank account, do you do so with a sense of this is an awesome holy thing? This is no longer a Snoopy check out of Rick's checkbook. Yes, I have them. This is now a holy thing. It has simply instantly transformed. This is a holy gift, a holy offering. I think about Jesus. I love the story, especially how Mark tells it. Mark chapter 12, verse 41, says Jesus sat down opposite the treasury. So he's there in the temple courts. And it says, he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Now that'll make you think twice. Jesus watches me give. Yes, he does. Jesus is aware of how I give. Yes, he is. Jesus has an interest. I mean, think about that. He's, he's sitting there with the express purpose according to Mark's gospel. He's sitting down just to watch people give. How they're doing it. And that's the key word. How they were giving. Not how much. But he's watching their heart. He's watching their attitude. And of course, many rich people were putting in large sums. Well, God bless them. I hope so. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, with knowledge only Jesus can have, he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. That is, empty out the treasury box for the day. She just put in more than any, all combined. For they all put out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on, and only Jesus would know that. He's watching how people give, and he sees her give everything she's got. Now, I don't know how anybody gives here at the fellowship. I, I don't want to know. I don't know how much. But sometimes, I confess, I do notice people give. I notice when people go to the box, the tithe boxes in the back. I, I will notice from time to time someone walk by and, you know, slap it like they're giving a high five. That's fine. I'll see other people, and I've, I've, this has blessed my heart so much. When I watch someone, and, I, and I've seen it happen, walk in and pause and hold that check for a moment, that envelope, and obviously they're saying something to the Lord, and then they drop it in. And I find that so encouraging because there is a recognition in that moment, this is a holy thing. This is a holy gift. We have so, 
We think of money as so unrighteous. Unrighteous mammon, Jesus even called it. But again, the second it leaves my hands for the purpose of the Lord, it becomes a holy thing. Do you approach it that way? Now, some might say, I don't approach the offering boxes at all. Well, talk to the Lord about that. That's between you and him. That's not between you and me or you and the bridge or you and the church. That's between you and God. He wants to draw out faith. He wants you to trust him, which is kind of why we do giving here the way we do it, that it can be a, an issue of faith between the believer and the father and not between the member and the board, you know. It has nothing to do with that. It's a holy thing. And if you don't give, then you are missing a most holy offering. If you tithe electronically, do you pause before you hit send and pray over the tithe? Pray over the offering. Thank God for his provision that even allows you the gift. It's a holy thing, my friends. But there are other holy things. And as a royal priesthood, the way we approach these holy things is significant because we've got to approach with the right heart, with the attitude of worship, with deep respect and awe for the Lord. Some things worth considering in, in our approach of the holy things. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 8, the Lord says, the priests did not say, where is the Lord? In other words, they weren't even looking for me. And he says, and those who handled the law don't know me. By contrast, Paul says, 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This is a holy thing. I'm not talking about the paper or parchment and the leather. I'm talking about the word of God. This is a holy thing. How do you handle it? How do you approach it? Do you approach the word as holy? Or how about this one? Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15. The Lord says, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. God's saying, your prayers don't get to me because of the way you approach praying. Praying is a holy thing. It is among our holy offerings to the Lord. Oh, we offer monetarily. We offer the word in this world and to each other. And we, we offer up prayers and Paul wrote and I think he must have had Isaiah in mind because he says I want the men in every place to pray lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension because prayer is a holy thing financial offerings the word prayer all these go to the holy integrity of the life of a believer priest that's who you are in Jesus Christ that's who I am we are a royal priesthood of believers and really in all these things, and you could probably come up with many more holy things that we handle and that we approach as his royal priesthood, but when you give your life to Jesus, when someone receives Jesus as Lord and Savior, your very life becomes an offering. So beyond all these specific individual things that we could talk about, my life is an offering. My life in Jesus becomes a holy gift, an offering to God. Romans 12, verse 1, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. That's amazing, because that means 
Everything that I have, all that I am, becomes a holy offering when I receive Christ. You know, we talk about receiving Christ, but he receives us as well. And I approach him, and I am called to approach with a holy, reverent heart. Now, you know what that means? If, if you and I are holy offerings, if, if we can say we are the holy things of God, look around. There are holy offerings all around you tonight. This room is filled with holy gifts to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, we are, we are holy before God. Our church fellowship, the church itself, the body of Christ. How do we approach the holy things of God? Andy, and I'm just saying this because I'm looking right at you, Andy's a holy thing of God. When I approach him as a brother in Christ, I am approaching one of the holy things. Now think about that with brothers and sisters with whom you have disagreement. Guess what? You're still approaching a holy thing of God. How do you approach? It's very easy to say, oh, I approach the tithe box and I pause and I pray and I have a holy moment with the Lord and it's beautiful and it's touching and it's sincere. But what about that brother, that sister that's rubbing you the wrong way? He or she is a holy thing. How do I approach her? How do I approach him? With a right heart of sincerity and awe before the Lord? This is one of yours. She belongs to you. He is your son. I mean, folks, it changes everything when we begin to think this way. And when Jesus says, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, if you have love for one another, that love grows and develops a sense of the holy in Monica and in Eva and in Dean and Lori Beth, a sense of the holy in John. You are the holy things of God, brothers and sisters. Which is why I keep repeating Hebrews 13.1 lately, let love of the brethren continue. Because from our tithes to our lives, we must approach the holy things with the right heart. And the priests were called to do that. You don't mess around with the holy things. You don't approach them wrong. You don't come at them unclean. You recognize what they are when a son, a daughter of Israel, would bring an offering to the tabernacle. This was a most holy thing and had to be treated that way. See, the problem is, on the other hand, we can pollute the holy things. We can pollute the gifts and the offerings of God if we treat them casually or carelessly or, worst of all, callously. If we come at the holy things with a hard heart, look at verse 4. No man of the descendants of Aaron who is a leper or who has a discharge may eat of the holy things until he's clean. And if one touches anything made unclean by a corpse, or if a man has a seminal omission, or if a man touches any teeming of the teeming things by which he is made unclean, or any man by whom he is made unclean, whatever his uncleanness, so it's a broad swath, any kind of uncleanness, and we've covered all that in Leviticus so far, a person who touches any such shall be unclean until evening, and shall not eat of the holy things unless he has bathed his body in water. But when the sun sets, he will be clean, and afterward he shall eat of the holy things, for it is his food. He shall not eat an animal which dies or is torn by beasts. So I've said before, rogue kill is out. Becoming unclean by it, I am the Lord. He says in verse 9, they shall therefore keep my charge, the priests, so that they will not bear sin because of it and die thereby because they profane it. I am the Lord 
who sanctifies them. Okay, question number two. Question number one is how do we approach the holy things? Question number two is how then do we receive the holy things? Our approach is with a right heart, recognizing that the things of God, brothers and sisters, the word, the tithes and offerings, prayer, worship, on down the list we could go, these are holy things. Do we approach them as holy? But now the question changes, how do we receive those holy things? Do we receive them with reverence or irreverence? With devotion or disrespect? In perfection or in profanity? You see, before a priest could approach the holy things of God, the priest had to be perfect. Now, there's nowhere where it says literally he had to be perfect, but when you read what he could not be, he could not have any kind of defect or deformity whatsoever. And he couldn't be in an unclean state. He had to be clean to receive the holy things. Now, we're not talking about legalism here. Unfortunately, that's what a lot of the priesthood and the old rabbis and, and Israel early on tried to do. They tried to be legalistic. They focused on the smallest letter or stroke of the law, thinking they just need to keep all of these things, and then they can be clean and perfect, and they discovered it did not work. They were yet unclean. John 15.3, royal priest, this is about you. Jesus said, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Which is marvelous because as far as Jesus is concerned, once I'm covered with the blood of Christ, I cannot approach the holy things unclean. I'm already clean. I'm clean as I come to him. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Paul says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete. The word is teleo or teleo, and it means perfect, finished. You are a complete job, and he's head over all rule and authority. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified, as Jake read. Perfected, clean. Made complete, done. Wait a minute. Am I perfect or am I being made perfect? I mean, those verses sound like I'm already done. I'm clean. I'm finished. I'm good. But then other verses. In fact, wasn't it Paul who said something about that he pressed on for what he had not obtained? What was not Perfection yet? Turn in your Bibles back to Philippians chapter 3. And let's, let's answer that question. Philippians chapter 3. All the way over in your New Testaments. Just flip till you get there. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12. Where Paul is talking about pressing on to something that he has not yet obtained. Verse 12 says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Oh no, we have a contradiction in the Bible. On the one hand, Jesus says, you're already clean. Paul himself to the church at Colossae said, you have been made complete. And the Hebrew pastor will come along later and say, he has perfected you. But here Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become 
perfect. Well, I thought you had, Paul. Which is it? Are you perfect or are you being made perfect? He says, no, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Okay, so what was it that Paul had not yet obtained? What did he lack? We'll look back. In verse 12 at the beginning, it says, not that I have already obtained it. What is it? Go back one verse. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What had Paul not obtained? His resurrection. The rapture. What we talked about on Sunday. And I hope you got that on Sunday, that when we say our resurrection, we're talking about the rapture. And when we say the rapture, we're talking about our resurrection. The being caught up is the moment when the perishable puts on the imperishable and we are forever changed. In the twinkling of an eye, the rapture of the church, that's the resurrection. Our resurrection, that's the resurrection of the dead in Christ and it's the resurrection of those alive at his coming who are resurrected out of our mortal state into our immortality. So resurrection, rapture, the same thing. And Paul's saying as he writes, I haven't obtained that yet. He's right, he hadn't. Paul will still get there before you and me, by the way, because he's dead in Christ. And so he will rise before, and then we will meet him. In the, so, you know, we're going to be there with Paul and Peter. We're going to be hanging out, and it's going to be glorious. But in that our resurrection has not happened, none of us are finished. So in that case, no, none of us are perfect. We have not been made perfect, but read on. Verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, his resurrection, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The prize at the goal is our completed resurrection. So when we're caught up, that's the prize. We have reached the goal. That's the end of the race. And then forever on, we are glorious with Jesus. We are in our immortal state. I can't wait. But that's, that's the moment. That's what we're pressing on to. That's the prize. But then in verse 15, he says this. Let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. So Paul has just said, I'm imperfect in that I am still mortal. I am not yet resurrected. That's what I'm looking for. That's, that's the finished work in terms of the whole thing. But I'm still perfect. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, verse 15, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal, reveal that also to you, which is comforting to me as a pastor because I don't have to convince you of anything. God will do that. The Lord will take care of it. But Paul, wait, you're saying that we are imperfect in our mortality, but we are still perfect. We are perfect in the eyes of God. And he says in verse 16, however, let us keep living by the same standard to which we have obtained. What have we obtained? Perfection. Sinlessness. Our salvation. Royal priests don't ever forget for all of our apparent flaws and foibles and missteps and even sins, God looks at you covered with the blood of Christ and sees perfect. You can't add to that. You can't build on that. You, you can't do one more thing to make you just a little more perfect to get saved. That's already done. 
I love that. The standard is perfection, and we are seen as perfect by the Lord through Jesus. And so what the application is, go back to Leviticus, but the application for us today is we are called the perfect priesthood being made perfect. That's who you are. You are perfect being made perfect. Perfect in the eyes of God, perfect by the blood of Christ, sinless unto salvation because of the work of Jesus, and yet we are also being made perfect. And I call it the dynamic irony of faith in Jesus. It's, it's amazing. We are clean priests, but we are yet learning what it means to be clean. We're perfect, but we don't fully comprehend. What does that look like? How do we do that? And so our sanctification, and I've said this before, our sanctification is not to save us. We are saved. Our sanctification is to train us up a royal priesthood, is to prepare us for our roles in the kingdom, for our future with Jesus. I'm perfect right now, praise the Lord, and I am being made perfect in my understanding, in my comprehension, in my heart. So back to question number two. Question number one, how do we approach the holy things? We approach them as holy. But how do we receive the holy things? We treat them as holy. We handle them as holy, not as profane and look again at verse 9 the Lord says they shall therefore keep my charge so that they will not bear sin because of it and die thereby because they profane it I am the Lord who sanctifies them the word profane you don't want to profane the holy things as you receive them so what is that word it's yahalelu yahalelu in the Hebrew and the word means to defile or pollute. You might go, wait, that sounds like hallelujah. It's a different word. See, there's the word in the Hebrew, hallel, which is where we get hallelujah, and that's praise. But there's also the word halal, different letter, different word, which means to pollute. So you can either receive the holy things in praise, or you can receive the holy things in pollution. And that is up to how we receive them. Am I praising God, or am I polluting the priesthood? There's too much pollution in the church that ought not to be, that doesn't need to be there. God even says, I am the Lord who sanctifies them. In other words, my name is on the line in their sanctification. Do you realize that? That God banked his reputation on your sanctification. That scares me to death. That right there makes me think, well, if God's reputation is based on my sanctification there are days I would make God look really bad. And that would be true except for this. Romans 5.20 tells us that the law came in so the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You know what God's reputation is in the heavenly places? A God of all grace. And it's something the heavenly places didn't always understand. Couldn't see, couldn't fully grasp what does that mean? And so then God begins to work with humanity, pouring out grace. Humanity doesn't get it. So God begins to work with a people, pouring out grace, and the people didn't receive it. So God says to as many as received him, grace. We become children of God. And he's, he's doing this lesson in grace. 
God has grace for his priests, which is why he can, he can stake his name on my sanctification. He can say, I'll tell you what, I'm banking on Rick. Not because Rick is so all that, but because I am giving him my grace and I'm gonna save him and show you what grace really means. Show you? Show who? Listen, before you as a priest go wallowing in your pollution, and far too many Christians do, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. A mystery. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church, you and me, royal priesthood, to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. I love that verse because it tells us, Paul says that God revealed the mysterious wisdom of his grace in and through the church. To teach angels and principalities and rulers in the heavenly places, this is what grace looks like. This is how grace works in and through a person. This is how I make a person perfect and yet work to perfect them. This is how they can be saved and yet I'm sanctifying them. That's what grace does. That God is not only teaching you, teaching me about grace in his nature, but he's even teaching beings beyond our universe about grace. Grace, amazing grace. So what do we do? That being the case, and it's marvelous and wonderful and encouraging, so what do we do when we feel polluted? It's real nice to talk about being a royal priesthood. Well, I've got the grace of God, and I'm being sanctified, and he looks at me as perfect. That's all beautiful. But I got dirty days, and so do you. And I was looking right at Lori Beth when I said that. <laughs> I have days where I feel filthy. I'll come off watching a show and go, why did I watch that? I didn't need to. I will set no worthless thing before my eyes, I say to the Lord, sometimes too late. And that pollution gets in us and on us. What do we do? Verse 6. Look back at verse 6. You shall not eat of the holy things unless, unless what? He has bathed his body in water. See, that's the key. All you need is a bath. When you get the pollution off, you take a bath. When you get the filth off, you wash. You want to be clean again, you wash in the water. The water. You know where I'm going with this. Jesus said, John 7, 38, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, speaking of the Holy Spirit. How do I get the pollution off? Man, I pray in the Spirit. How do I get the pollution off? I go to the Spirit. I ask that the Spirit would wash me like water, but not only the Spirit, the way the Spirit works in and through the Word of God. Spirit in the Word, Word in the Spirit. Ephesians 5, 25, Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. We get washed. Thank God we're already perfect. So if we happen to die on a particularly polluted day, I have my salvation in Jesus. But I also get washed time and time again. Tonight's teaching was for me a washing this week. A washing I needed, a good cleansing in the word. And that's what we do. We go get washed. We get into the word of God. It washes over us the pollution away. 
We pray in the Spirit. We go to the Holy Spirit. We seek the Spirit of God. He washes that pollution away. That's how it works. So we're perfect and yet being perfected. We're clean and yet we continually are getting washed in the Spirit and in the Word. And in verse 10, continuing, he says, No layman, however, is to eat the holy things. A sojourner with the priest or a hired man shall not eat of the holy. If a priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that one may eat of it, and those who are born in his house may eat of his food. If a priest's daughter is married to a layman, she shall not eat of the offering of the gifts. But if a priest's daughter becomes a widow or divorced and has no child and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she shall eat of her father's food, but no layman shall eat of it. No non-priest could eat at the table of the Lord. Because we talked about last week, the food of God, the lechem, the bread of God, all of these things, the, the meat offerings, grain offerings, the bread of the presence, these things were the food of God and they were given to the priests for their provision. The food of God was a holy offering. No lay person could eat it. What do we mean, lay person? The word in the Hebrew there is czar, Z-A-R, and it literally means a stranger. In any other case, if he's talking to Israel proper, the rest of the people, and he said, no stranger among you, we'd be talking about a foreigner. But when he's talking to the priesthood, he is talking about a stranger to the priesthood, so a non-priest. And so God is making very clear, here's the deal. Once those things are offered, they're holy things. Once they become holy things, only the priests may eat of them and not the non-priest among you. Let's make application of that. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Don't give what is holy to dogs or pigs. Don't do it. So we got the priests, and then we have the layperson. So obviously the Bible's talking about pastors and, and parishioners. No. We're all, we're all called as priests. Remember, it's the saints of the royal priesthood. It's all of us. So we don't have some who are and some who aren't. In Jesus Christ, we're all the priesthood. In Jesus Christ, we all eat of the food of God, the bread of the word, the water of the word and of the spirit. So when Jesus says, do not give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before swine, what's he talking about? You can try to make some allusions to some different things. You can say non-believers, but if you're not supposed to give what is holy to a non-believer, how can I give the word? I got to be able to give the word to a non-believer for them to even become a believer, right? So how do I not? It's not what he's talking about. Pigs and dogs. Peter opens up and explains who pigs and dogs are. If you want to look it up, you can. It's 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, where Peter very clearly tells us who the pigs are and who the dogs are. It's those who have heard and rejected the truth. Truth has already been presented. The bread has been offered. The, the food has been put on the table. It's been rejected. And that's instructive for a priest in this priesthood. You don't keep putting the food of God out on the table before the rebellious. That's the person who's heard, and they have rejected the word. 
Now, this always opens up a can of worms of questions whenever I say something like this, because people say, well, look, I've got a family member I've been working on for years. I'm supposed to stop working on them? I didn't say that. What I'm saying is there's some wisdom here in understanding. We feed the gospel to the hungry, right? Less go to the hungry ones. Present the word of God to the hungry ones. Give the gospel to those who are hungry. But there are some holy things that are only for the priests. There's some Christian conversations. There's some biblical things that we wrestle through together and talk about that you don't take specifically to the person who's rejected it. Because they're just going to chew it up and spit it out. Some will just come and tear you to pieces. Mockers will come with their mocking. And the Bible's very clear. You don't just keep taking the food of God back again and again and again to the rebellious of heart, to the person who's cut it off and said, no, I don't want it. Hey, if they say they don't want it, don't give it. What do I do with the sister who said to me, she doesn't want anything to do with this? I'll tell you what you do. You respect her wishes and you pray for her and you intercede for her and you go to God and you name her daily before the Lord and you let the spirit begin to work. You know what I like to pray? Lord, I pray that you'll just surround them so, with so many believers it'll drive them nuts. <laughs> Father, bring believers into the workplace, bring believers into the grocery store, bring, bring believers into the house, have them become great friends and discover only later that this person's passionate about Jesus. That's what I pray. But I respect if someone rejects the word, I'm not going to put the food out before them. It's available for anyone who is hungry. And again, there are some holy things that are only for the priests. I'll give you an example. We did it tonight. Communion. Communion is an act for the royal priesthood. Turn over to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians in your Bibles, chapter 11. If it's familiar, that's cool. Go there anyway. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's that section. It's often read when we share in communion, the Eucharisteo, right? The Thanksgiving. When we share communion together, oftentimes we'll read this passage. I received verse 23 of 1 Corinthians 11. From the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is a holy thing. The bread, it's a holy thing. How do you approach the table of the Lord? How do you approach the holy things of God? And when he had given thanks, broke, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. This is a holy thing. Do we treat it as holy? See, because Paul goes on and says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, we might even say an unholy manner, with a wrong heart, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And that is the body, myself in particular, but it's also the body in general. Do we recognize when we come to the table of the Lord, we come together, we are unified in spirit? 
that we are one body because there's only one, the body of Christ. For this reason, Paul goes on and says, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. Some of you are dead because of the way you're approaching the holy with an unholy heart. He says, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so we will not be condemned along with the world. He goes on and talks a little bit more about this, but understand that communion, this is a priestly moment. This is a holy moment that is food for the priest and only for the priests. So do we close the table? Some churches do that. They say unless you are a baptized believing member having signed the document of a particular church, you can't come to the table. I remember going to a Catholic funeral for a friend of mine. This was just out of high school. And in the funeral, everybody began filing forward to receive the wafer from the priest. He drank the wine. All kinds of problems there. But everybody came forward. I, I came up, and he gave me a blessing and sent me on my happy way. I didn't get a wafer. I'm like, I don't get a snack? No, no treat for, you know? I was barred from the table because I wasn't part of that group. And so we, do we do that here at the bridge? Do we bar people from the table? And someone might say, you know what? I see you allowing kids to take communion, children going up and grabbing communion with their, with their moms and their dads. In fact, Pastor Rick, I've seen your grandkids do it themselves. I thought the food was only for the priests. You know what? According to this word, Leviticus 22, the children of the priests may eat. Kids can eat the food of the Lord, the food of God. Why? Because they're being trained up in the priestly household. And that's our mentality, by the way, for allowing children, encouraging families. I loved it. I saw Eli and Mindy on Sunday morning gathered around right here in the front row with their kids. And Eli's passing it around and talking to them. And they're praying together. And I just went, that's the deal. That is a royal priesthood training up their children in what's going on here at this table. That's why we do that. So within the family and within the priesthood, absolutely, they're being trained up in the house. And by the way, did you notice, verse 11 says, but if a priest buys a slave as his property with his money, that one may eat of it. Those who are born in his house may eat of his food. So his kids can, his slave can too. And we're not gonna get all into the slavery discussion because as we said before, slavery in Israel was not like slavery in America. Total, totally different thing. It's more, it was indentured servitude. It was a different type of thing and God regulated it he wasn't okay with it but he regulated it here I am talking about it even though I said I wasn't going to but the point was the indentured servant got to eat the food of God he could eat of the offerings he could eat of the bread of the presence that which was brought home by the priest as his provision was for his whole family including his children his wife and his indentured servants could eat that I love that. It's such a profound reminder to me. You know what? We are a royal priesthood and we are bond slaves of Jesus Christ. We're both priest and slave in the house. We're priests, you know, called such as the Lord, royal by his doing, but slaves in our thanksgiving, humble in our gratitude. Now, in case a non-priest accidentally ate the holy things, you might say, well, Rick, you really didn't answer the question about 
what about a non-believer eating communion, sharing in communion? Well, we're not going to stand there and ask. My assumption is, and the reason why we put a focus on communion, is my assumption is if you're coming to the table to take, you're coming to the table because you want to proclaim the death of Jesus till he comes. That you understand what's going on. And I've seen people stay seated. I've seen people visiting, coming, you know, with friends and family, and they'll, they'll kind of sit there, and they don't have to take. We're not asking, because it's a holy moment for the priesthood. It's holy for you and the Lord, your children. That's what we're doing. But interestingly, if a non-priest accidentally ate the holy things, God adds here a compassionate caveat. So, so a friend comes over to the priest's house, and there's a little bit of meat on the table, and he's kind of hungry, and he grabs a little bite, and he's chewing on it. And the priest walks in and goes, whoa, 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 what would you just do? I just had some meat. That was from the offerings. <laughs> Dead. No. What God does, verse 14, if a man eats a holy thing unintentionally, then he shall add to it a fifth of it, that's a 20%, a double tithe, and shall give the holy to the priest. So if he accidentally takes it, there's something he's got to do. Verse 15, they shall not profane the holy things of the sons of Israel which they offered to the Lord. And so cause them to bear punishment for guilt by eating their holy things. That is the priest's holy things. For I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So if someone un unintentionally has some of the bread, has some of the meat, and isn't supposed to, doesn't even know what it is, doesn't realize it, immediately they are guilty but God's compassionate. Now, we got to get around this because as, as human beings, we don't like this kind of thing. How can you be guilty of something when you didn't know? It's very simple. It's like me telling the police officer, going 80 in a 20, I didn't see the sign. I didn't know. You didn't know going around that corner in the small town when you're going 80 miles an hour, you didn't know that. Didn't, no, I, I didn't know. We feign ignorance. But what about sins that I really didn't know I was committing? What about wrongs that I've done? And I, I truly did not know it was the wrong thing to do. This is a prime example of it. Guy eats a piece of the meat and doesn't even know it. It's unintentional. And we would say, that's not fair. It's unintentional. You know what? It's unintentional, but it's still wrong. It still violates the law of God. We need to understand that whether we know something is a sin or not, if it's a sin, it's a sin. If it's wrong, it's wrong. It doesn't matter what we think about it or if we knew or not. It's still wrong. And what's beautiful about the Lord here is he makes a way to, for it to be made right. I understand you didn't know what you were doing. It was still wrong. Now you know. But so that you understand, here's something I want you to do. What I'm saying is ignorance is no excuse for sin. Never has been, never will be. Because even in our ignorance, we can still profane the holy things, however God gives grace. He gives grace to the heedless, careless receiver. Here's what you do. Double tithe, present the offering back, you're good, forgiven. And now you know next time not to eat the meat off the priest's table unless it says Kentucky Fried Chicken, okay? Is this ever you? Are you ever the heedless receiver? Careless, perhaps, with the things of God you didn't even think about being the things of God? Have you ever been that? The, the heedless receiver, you know, casual with your Christianity. Oh, man, I look back 
Even as a young youth pastor, I look back at how casual I was at times with my faith. I'm embarrassed by it now. I know things now I didn't know then. I was so kicked back with my attitude about God and the whole deal. It's all cool, you know. A heedless receiver. I, I can tell you I rarely ever thought about the holiness and the holy things of God and how I approached and then how I received these things. You ever done that? You ever mishandled the word? You ever taking communion, but your thoughts were completely somewhere else? You better ever been in the midst of prayer? I know this is none of you. You've been in the midst of prayer, and next thing you go, what was I saying? A heedless receiver of the holy things. Ever taken a detour from the midst of devotion? There's grace for the heedless receiver. There's always grace. And what's interesting about this to me is he says that man needs to do this. If he eats the gift unintentionally, he shall add to it a fifth and shall give the holy to the priest. In other words, there's something he has to do. What this means is when the heedless person realizes their fault, they repent. Very simple. I did wrong here. What do I do? Here's what you do. And for you and for me as royal priests, we repent. We don't repent because if we don't repent, we're going straight to hell. I grew up believing that. If I didn't repent of a sin, that sin was stuck to me for good. That used to really scare me as a kid. No, repentance is turning back to the Lord. Repentance is recognizing the wrong and just turning to the Father. Saying, I'm sorry. And the Lord knows. And he's compassionate and gracious to forgive. Sometimes there are things, however, in our lives as priests that we would repent of, but we're just not really thinking about it. Again, we're being heedless. I think of a man by the name of Archippus. We'll call him Archie. Colossians chapter 4, verse 17. Paul says, say to Archie, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. This is the only time we hear about Archippus in the entire Bible. This is Archie's legacy. This is it. You have one verse written about you in the Bible, and that verse happens to be, you got some unfinished business. (laughs) I'm just glad my name's not in the Bible, because I'd have more than one verse about all the unfinished business of my life. But Archippus, we think he was maybe a missionary at Colossae. We don't know much about him, but Paul knew you're there, you're on a task, you're on mission, but you have not fulfilled your task. Get after it. Get to it. He has the legacy of a task unfinished in his ministry. Paul said to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, 5, you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, underscore this, fulfill your ministry. I'm saying to you as much as to me, if we have been heedless with the things of God, if we've been careless or reckless with the holy things of the Lord, things given to us, Opportunities given to us and we haven't followed through. Follow through. Get to it. Fulfill your ministry. Keep at it. If there's a task unfinished, we've said before, what was the last thing that God asked you to do that you haven't done? Do it. Oh yeah, I gotta do it to save myself. No, you're already saved. Forget about that. You're good. Fulfill your ministry so that you can be a sanctified priest. Perfect but being made perfect. Because the days are waning fast, right? 
Rapture's just around the minute. We don't know. And I still, I just, we've got to be so close. If you've got something unfinished, do it. Hebrews 10, 37, for yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And I'll tell you what, on that day, there will be some of us saying, why didn't I? But I could have. Like the last scene in Schindler's List, a heartbreaking scene. As Arthur Schindler is being escorted out by all the Jews that he saved, over a thousand Jewish people that he saved from the Nazis, and they make him a gold ring, and they hand it to him, and he just breaks. And in that moment, he says, I could have saved three more. This ring, this ring could, be, could have been three more. This car, the car he's about to get into. This car, five Jews. And he just starts breaking down, realizing how much he could have done even though he had done so much. He's in the cemetery of the righteous in Israel, Arthur Schindler. He did so much, but he could have done more. Are you there? If we were to be raptured to the clouds tonight, would you stand before Jesus going, praise the Lord, oh, I could have. Fulfill your ministry. Don't be reckless. Don't be heedless of your calling. My righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we're not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Question number three. What is the condition of our holy things, of our offerings? How do we approach the offerings in the first place? How do we receive those holy things? But now, what is the condition of these holy things? Verse 17. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the sons of Israel, and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel or of the aliens in Israel who presents his offering, now this is going out to all Israel, so it's not just the priesthood, it's everyone, who presents his offering, whether it is any of their votive, that means vow, or any of their free will offerings, which they present to the Lord for a burnt offering, for you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. Whatever has a defect, you shall not offer. It will not be accepted for you. When a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow, or for a free will offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. I love what Bonner says about this. The holy, harmless, undefiled one, Jesus, is ever set before our eyes. The Lord does not weary of the sight, and surely sinners should never weary of the sight of the one who brings them life by his death. And he's speaking of this verse right here, a male without defect. Here's Jesus again. Why did the offerings have to be made perfect? Why did they have to be without defect? fault or flawless because Jesus was because all of them pointed ahead to him all of the offerings had to be a spotless lamb without defect because Jesus himself was perfect Hebrews 9 13 for if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. A male without defect, Jesus Christ. In verse 22, he describes now some of these defects. See if it sounds familiar. Those that are blind or fractured or maimed or having a running sore or eczema or scabs. We saw that in the disabled priest. So it's now not only the priest must not be defected, but the offering has to be perfect as well. You shall not offer these to the Lord, nor make of them an offering by fire on the altar to the Lord. God required that the priest be perfect. Now he requires that the offerings. So offerer and offering must both be perfect. Do we always offer what is best and perfect to the Lord when we make offerings? Does God deserve a Salvation Army barrel of leftovers? You know what I'm talking about, right? We have a Salvation Army barrel out there, and a lot of times people just think it's a trash can. We look in there, there's little bits of pieces, paper and junk thrown in there, along with some cans. Let's see, here's a can. Army surplus. What, what is this? Our offerings, are they sometimes paltry? Are, are they leftovers? Are they... Turn to Malachi. Malachi, the Italian prophet Malachi. Last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 1. And let me let the Lord express his feeling about priests who bring defective offerings. Malachi chapter 1. Go ahead and turn there. The first half of Malachi's very brief four-chapter letter the Lord is getting after the priests. They have really profaned the holy things. Listen to this. Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord is speaking. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where's my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? You are presenting defiled food upon my altar. You say, how have we defiled you? In that you say, the table of the Lord is to be despised. But when you present the blind for sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you present the lame and the sick, is that not evil? Why not offer it to your governor? Would he be pleased with you? Would he receive you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? But now... Will you not entreat God's favor that he may be gracious to us with such an offering on your part? Will he receive any of you kindly, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the gates, that is the temple gates, that you might not uselessly kindle a fire on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord of hosts, nor will I accept an offering from you. You're giving me your leftovers. Blind, lame, cheap, the skimpy of the flock. He says in verse 11, for from the rising of the sun even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name. Check it out in the kingdom, it's gonna happen. And a grain offering that is pure, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts, verse 12, but you are profaning it. Remember the word profaned in the Hebrew? Polluting it. You're making my name filthy, he says. In that you say, the table of the Lord is defiled, and as for its fruit, its food is to be despised. You also say, my, how tiresome it is 
and you disdainfully sniff at it, says the Lord of hosts. And you bring what was taken by robbery and what is lame or sick so that you bring the offering. Should I receive that from your hand, says the Lord? But cursed be the swindler who has a male in his flock and vows it, but sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name is feared among the nations. And the Lord goes after the priesthood, defines their sin as profaning his very name. Qu quickly flip back to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 23. He's saying you're... You can't offer these things. And this is early on. So this is way before Malachi comes along and begins prophesying. And we see where the priests end up. They started out with God saying, you do not offer anything that's defective. But then in verse 23, he does say, in respect to an ox or a lamb which has an overgrown, literally deformed or stunted member, you may present it for a free will offering. But for a vow, it will not be accepted. Now, this is amazing. God says, look, if you're just offering to me just because you want to, just because you want to come spend some time with me, a free will offering, just want to give, you're in the mood to give, give whatever you want. I mean, within reason, right? If it's got a little bit of a, a deformity to it or, or a maybe it's got a, a little short front leg, that's okay because you're just giving it of your own free will. You can do that. You can offer of your own free will. But if it's a votive, a vow offering, this is serious devotion you don't do that. That's pretty cool. That's a relational God. Saying, hey, yeah, bring it. If, if you just want to hang out, sure, hot dogs are fine. Well, no, probably not. <laughs> be franks. It'll be okay. Kosher. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. If you just want to have a meal with the Lord, sure, that's okay. But if it's a vow, you got to be devoted with it. It's much more serious. Even so, priests... Listen to me. Even so, what did God's free will offering look like? He gave freely his own son, his perfect, unblemished, flawless son, because he wanted to be with you, because he wanted a relationship with you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's the standard of the offering. And what I'm saying to you and what he's been challenging me with this week is don't bring our leftovers. Don't bring the skimmings. You know, monetarily, going all the way back to the beginning of our study, don't wait till you're done going through all your bills and paying for everything and taking care of everything and then go, well, if there's something left over. I actually did pretty well this month. I can give 100 bucks. Don't do that. Man, that's, that's your leftovers. Now, if... If you've already tithed and given an offering at the end of the month, you got 100 bucks and go, I'm going to give this to the Lord. Great, bring it. You can do that anytime you want. But is your offering holy? Is it your best that you're bringing? Verse 24, he says, Also, anything bruised or crushed or torn or cut, you shall not offer to the Lord or sacrifice in your land, nor shall you accept any such from the hand of a foreigner for an offering as the food of your God, for their corruption is in them. They have a defect. They shall not be accepted for you. Go back to verse 24. Anything bruised or crushed or torn or cut. And you might be saying, Rick, you skipped over some words, and I say, yes, I did. <laughs> the words are italicized. First of all, they're not even in the text. 
When you see italicized words, and I often do this in my Bible, I will either line through them so I can read what's really there, or I'll re- I just recognize those, those aren't in the Hebrew. So what's in the Hebrew, God is saying anything bruised or crushed or torn or cut. However, the context implies an animal that's been castrated. Why does he have to talk about this stuff? Is it just funny? I, I, sometimes I wonder if the Lord puts this in his word just because he knows I have to read it out loud in front of the fellowship. No. Why is, this, why is verse 24 even an issue? The implication of this bruising, crushing, tearing, or cutting is a castrated animal, and it was unacceptable. Why? Because all offerings were to be fruitful as God created them. If you are offering it to the Lord, you might say, well, that's weird because the offering's going to be slain. It's going to be killed. Yes, but it is brought to the Lord as fruitful because God is not interested in dead offerings. What do you mean by that? Romans 12, 1 again. Paul said, listen carefully, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. A fruitful sacrifice. Something that is about the fruitfulness of God. Think again about question number three. What is the condition of our offerings? Are our offerings fruitful? Are they alive? Or are they cold, dead afterthoughts? When I give to the Lord, am I giving something that has the ability to continue to give to bear even more fruit? It's the difference between offering up a fruitful, spotless lamb or a white elephant gift. I think so much of what people will give to the Lord, what I have in the past given to the Lord, could be compared to a white elephant gift. Well, I found it out in the garage and I'm not using it. Maybe God could use it. You should see some of the stuff people drop off at the church. Just thought you might want this couch. Make sure you fumigate it first. Oh, thanks. Not using this. It's been in my garage for 17 years, but thought you might want it. Why? Why would we want it here if you don't want it? You want to bless the Lord? You know that grandfather clock that you spent 2,500 bucks for in your living room? Bring that. We'll take that. You know the brand new leather furniture that you just bought for your living room? Let's bring that. We'll put that in the fireside room tonight. <laughs> You get what I'm saying? It's it's afterthought stuff, and it's skimmings from the bottom of the barrel, and it's stuff that's not fruitful. And God wants alive, fruitful gifts. That's holy. And in all seriousness, listen to me, whatever we offer the Lord of ourselves, of our time, of our money, of our resources, think about this. Is it the best that we have? Or is it just something from the side? Pull this out of the closet, Lord, thought you might like it. Why would he want it if we don't? In Peter's royal priestly passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, he says in verse 4, coming to him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. He's living precious. He is the cornerstone. What are we bringing to the precious one? If we're offering the holy, may it be precious to us as well. Christ is the measure of the gift. Jesus is the standard. 
flawlessly given. He is both perfect priest and he is perfect sacrifice. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. So put simply, we give in light of what he gave. We do because of what he did. Verse 26, and then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when an ox or a sheep or a goat is born, it shall remain seven days with its mother. And from the eighth day and on, it shall be accepted as a sacrifice of an offering by fire to the Lord. But whether it's an ox or a sheep, you shall not kill it and its young in one day. And this is so beautiful to me. God just cares for his creation. There's tenderness in this law that you don't rip a newborn calf away from its mama and take it straight over to be sacrificed. You cannot offer that calf until it is at least eight days old. Why? It's tenderness. Mama cow's postnatal health and well-being. It's better for the cow, and we know this biologically for animals, for the mother to be able to nurse the young for the first seven days is healthier for the mother. It's also healthier that the mother doesn't have to watch her young ripped away from her right at birth when they are most protective and, and that, that young is more meaningful to mama cow. Infant was not to be stripped away from her at birth. The sacrifice was not acceptable. Note this, until the eighth day. What happened on the eighth day? Circumcision. The firstborn or the, the sons of Israel on the eighth day were to be circumcised because of the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of circumcision. Think about this. Luke chapter 2, verse 21 says, and when eight days had passed before his circumcision, that is Jesus, his name was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. If it was a male among the flock, it was sacrificed because it belonged to the Lord. If it's a male among the children of Israel, a, a human child, he was holy to the Lord, presented before the Lord, because every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy. The firstborn had to be presented. And then they paid with the silver shekels. They paid the redemption price to redeem that human being so the human being wasn't sacrificed like the lamb or the, or the goat or the ram. You realize this? That Jesus was the only, the first and only Jewish boy ever to actually become the holy offering of God. The perfect, unblemished, spotless lamb of God. And because he was flawless, death couldn't hold him. And even in his death, what did Jesus do? He bore fruit. Fruit unto eternal life. You are evidence. of your fruit tonight. You're a bunch of fruits. Here tonight. Because of the work of Jesus. And he said in John 12, 24, prophetically, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit, which is exactly what Jesus did in his offering, which is why in our offerings are we offering fruit to the Lord. Jake and I were talking about this earlier today. I had a pastor several years ago who fruit to him was 
rear ends on seats. That was fruit. How many teenagers I had in the room. I want to see that your ministry is fruitful. I want to know how many teens you've got in your room, and if the number's down one week from the week before, you're not as fruitful as you were the week before. But it was really, I, I hated that attitude. Because you know what fruitfulness, you know how it happens? You don't see it happen. A grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies. You don't see what's going on. It starts to sprout under the ground. You're not aware of that until it finally comes up, and then it begins to bear that grain of fruit itself. And in our ministry and in our lives, that's, that same thing applies. We will only fully comprehend, get this, we will only fully comprehend the fruitfulness of Jesus Christ in us and through us royal priests in New Jerusalem. We won't even fully see it in the millennial kingdom because you realize in the millennial kingdom as we're serving with Jesus, we're still going to be planting and, and tending and caring and being part of the process and there are going to be people saved in the millennial kingdom and it won't be until New Jerusalem when we come into that holy, remarkable place and look around and see the fruitful work of Jesus. And we will be blown away, guaranteed. In the meantime, don't doubt the fruitfulness of Christ in you. You just offer your best. You just give him what you've got. You just approach him with the right heart. You receive from him recognizing that these are holy things. And you give to him that which is holy and right and good, and you leave the fruitfulness up to him. He'll take care of that. Spirit's at work. That's not your job. It's his job to bear the fruit. Your job, water, plant, tend, bring what you've got. Verse 29, and when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day and you shall leave none of it until morning I am the Lord. Remember this, that the sacrifice of thanksgiving is also called the peace offering. So when you bring a peace offering, when you bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving, you could call this a day of event. This was not to be carried over several days. This was a day of. It was to be immediately shared. You offered the animal, you had the meat, and the priest got their portion, and the Lord got his portion on the altar, and the offerer got his portion, and he was to eat it right then and there. Please hear me. Note this. You might even want to underline verse 30. It shall be eaten on the same day. You shall leave none of it until morning. I am the Lord, the sacrifice of thanksgiving, same day. One of the greatest characteristics of a disciple priest of Jesus, they don't put off Thanksgiving. They offer it the same day. Same day thanks. If you're struggling at all in your priestly calling, if you're having difficulty in following Jesus, one of the best ways I know of to restart the heart, be thankful. Just stop. And, wait a minute. Stop and bring your holy offering of thanksgiving. Having a bad day, being frustrated. Yesterday was a particularly bad day. Part of the day was for me. Cheryl knew. It was one of those moments like, I'm just not going to say anything because anything I say, he's going to take it wrong. I know none of you have ever done that. We were out trying to get some things done, and I was being foiled at every turn. So we went to Dairy Queen. We got the little chicken basket with the little... Texas toast, I love that. You dip it in the gravy. It's, it's, it's comfort food. 
About five minutes into the comfort food, I'm starting to feel a little better. I go, I'm sorry. And Cheryl goes, <laughs> and I'm sitting there, and, and I remembered what I had been studying all day long. Be thankful. Rick, yeah, you've, you, you've had some disappointments and some frustrations. Be thankful. What are you thankful for? Because in those moments, if we stop and we pause, and I did last night, it began to run through my mind again. What am I thankful for? What am I thankful for? And, and once you start down that list, you will not stop. You will find one thing will roll into the next and to the next, and the more you are thankful in the moment, the more your heart grows, the more your priestly ministry returns. Bring your offering of thanksgiving. Paul said in Colossians 2, verse 6, I'm almost done here. Man, therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, walk in him. But he goes on, having been firmly rooted, now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. That's a royal priest. Overflowing with thanksgiving. Be anxious for nothing, Philippians 4, 6. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When? When you offer prayers with thanksgiving. It changes everything. Hebrews 13, 15, through him then let us continually Offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. Verse 31, so you shall keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. You shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. I am the Lord who sanctifies you, who brought you out from the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. My friends, the proof is in the power. If God could bring all these people out of Egypt, surely he can sanctify them. That's what he's saying. Remember what I did for you? Were you there? Were you present with all the plagues and the getting out and the parting the water? And all? Do you remember? I can sanctify you. I'm the same God who did that. Last question, final question. How is a perfect God sanctified? Wait a minute. Sanctification is the act of being made perfect, right? Well, he's already perfect God. Yeah, and you're already perfect priests, but you're being sanctified. How is a, how is a perfect God sanctified? He who is already sanctus. Perfect. Leviticus 10.3. Remember this? Moses said to Aaron, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and before all the people, I will be honored. How is God sanctified? When you and when I treat him as holy. He is the most holy. Of all the holy things we have talked about tonight, including ourselves, God is most holy. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings full of eyes around and within, day and night they do not cease saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Amen. Jesus, you are holy, most holy. And the things we've talked about, it's, it's a reminder to me going through this again of all the holy things that come through our hands, the holy things we approach, the holy things that we handle. Lord Jesus, the holy things that we offer, and it's all because you're a holy God. Father, sanctify your people.
teach us what it means to be perfect, even as we have been made perfect. And we thank you for your word to us tonight. Lord, would you seed it deeply into our hearts? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.